You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Squama by Sportiva. A shoe for climbers who are not afraid to send. Climbing obsession. Why are you so obsessed? Squama. Squama vegan. Precision. Stability. Squama vegan. Skin like. Why are you so obsessed? What would you do for the sand? What would you do for the sand? Squama by Sportiva. Squama. What would you do for the sand? Elevate your sending with the Squama and elevate your consciousness with the Squama Vegan. All the sending without the animal-derived materials. Find the Squama at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Squama. What would you do for the sand? Oh my God, Janice. You know what I like about winter in the mountains? It's puffy weather. Puffy weather? That's what I said, puffy weather. You know, the time to cuddle down in your puffy, no matter where or when. But what if your puffy is some sort of overworked, filthy, greasy rag? Like you've been hanging out in front of the fryer at Long John Silva's. That doesn't sound like the kind of puffy for puffy weather. More like dirtbag puffy weather. Well, if you need a new puffy, Black Diamond has you covered like glitter on the prom queen. Literally, covered in puffy. First... There's the Vision Down Parker, the puffiest puffy for puffy weather ever. Warmer than your dear mother's hug. By the way, call your mother. She misses you. She gave you life. Call your mother. Do you want to layer your puffy? Maybe over a sweater? Then look no further than the Approach Down hoodie. Stash it away until it's puffy weather for real. What about the Access Down hoodie? It's perfect for puffy weather that's on the cusp of sweater weather but could be puffy weather in an instant. I never leave home without my puffy, honey. Check out BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop for the warmest, snuggliest puffies around. Oh Oh my my God! God. Who Who else loves puffy weather? Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh yeah, big place. That's That's a big place. You sold it out. The hell are you doing? couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Time and Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the normal cast. And now back to the show. <laughs> Hey 
Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Galus. It is January 15th, 2024, about 10 p.m. here in Colorado, and this is episode 278 of the Enormacast, a conversation with alpinist Thomas Bukowski, also known as Neodude on Instagram. Isn't it weird how like the Instagram handles are starting to supplant people's names altogether? I think I first really noticed that with Trad Princess. I don't really know who that was <laughs> until I interviewed her. And uh, I think Neodude's a little bit the same. I didn't really know what his name was until uh, I started to think about interviewing him, got the recommendations from a couple people, and I had to look up his name, even though I knew a lot about him just by watching his Instagram. So anyway, Neo Dude on Instagram too. All right, but before we get that, there's a couple important pieces of business. First of all, you Enormacast fans, listeners, know what happens around the beginning of the year, never the first episode of the year, never, often the third, fourth episode of the year, actually, is the TAPS episode. It's coming up. We're making it. But last year, I thought about TAPSing the TAPS episode, but then that was one of my highest downloading episodes of the year. So we're going for it. You guys love it. Can't get enough of it. Saltiness actually is pretty popular on the internet, turns out. But what I'd like to do this year, and I need your participation again. Last year, we had a mostly listener mail one. But how about some voicemails? Would you guys be willing to call in with some voicemails with your TAPS suggestions? And if anybody's listening to this for the first time and don't know what TAPS is, well, we'll kind of get to it here in a sec. But those of you who know and are chomping at the bit to get something submitted, let's try doing voicemails. You got to come through for me. So I have an 800 number. I bought an 800 number. It's actually really inexpensive to get an 800 number, which is why I think there's so many fucking scams going on around the world, but I have an 800 number. So if you want to leave a voicemail with your taps, ideas, please don't hesitate. Call 1-888-532-9822. That's 888-532-9822. No, it doesn't spell anything. I thought about getting an enormous one, but that costs extra and I'm probably going to get rid of this after this month because I don't need an 800 number for anything else. I'm not keeping it to next year. I'll just get a new one because it's so cheap. Get an 800 number if you want one. Anyway, call that number or if you didn't write it down or you're driving or something like that, you can go to normacast.com. The phone number is on the first post up there. It's pinned to the top. I'll probably post it on Instagram too. That's usually the most effective way. Anyway, remember, taps are trends, ideas, things in climbing we wish A would go away. That's everybody's favorite one. They have their salty hobby horse they they want done away with, like shitty crag dogs or shitty crag dog owners. And then the next one, and this is actually my favorite one, favorite category. This is actually kind of how I started the TAPS thing. It wasn't just a bitch fest at the beginning. Our trends that are dying that we kind of wish weren't dying. I think traditions that are going away would be a good way to put it, that are, that are dying on the vine out of neglect. One of them that I constantly think about is the on-site. I don't think the on-site means what it used to mean. I think the flash and the on-site continue to get melded together into one thing. You can't belay your buddy and then on-site the route, unless you did like the old Frenchies used to do, which was turn away, not watch. They just belayed with their back to the wall, which sounds sketchy, but back in the day, if you used to see Frenchies belaying with like 
a cigarette in one hand and like just tossing rope through a loose figure eight while just spraying French gibberish at anybody who would listen. They were always pretty sketchy, but they survived somehow. And then finally, the zombies. The zombies are the ones that we all agree should go away. Like 99.9% of us think these things should go away, but they just hang on. You know, I think the unsolicited beta bro is one of those things. Even that guy doesn't like it when it happens to him, but he can't help himself at the gym. Just like, yeah, you should have grabbed that thing. Yeah, try it on like this. Anyway, we all know that's lame. So those are the categories. Call 1-888-532-9822. You fucking Canadians, you can call too, actually. Uh, The Europeans, I don't think you can. But uh, if you send me an email, I'll accept it if you got something. European perspective would be interesting. If you send a good one, we'll play it on the show. So try to talk clearly, be concise. Leave your name and address so I can send you a prize, but we won't use your full name on the show. And if you really need me to disguise your voice or something, which I can, then, uh, you know, tell me that or whatever. If you're really fucking going after something. <laughs> uh, that'll be good. If you, if you got something on there you need to disguise your voice for, we'll probably use it. <laughs> All right, second piece of business. This intro's getting long. Indulge me. My friend and friend of the show, Eric Barnard, up there in Winona, Minnesota, has organized an ice climbing festival. And I want to tell you about it real quick. I'll probably go to it next year. We're already talking about that. I'm going to Michigan this year. Anyway, Eric created an ice park there in Winona, Minnesota, also known as Boulder on the Mississippi. And uh, they've got an ice fest going on this year, the fledgling one, okay? The first ice fest, February 22nd to the 25th, 2024. So go to bigriverclimbingguides.com. That's where the Winona, Minnesota ice fest information resides. Of course, just Google Winona ice fest and it comes up. That's what I just did. It's a cool little town. They got an ice park that Eric created and uh, should be fun. You know, you can be like the early adopter. You can be like one of those people who saw the B-52s in somebody's basement in Athens. You know what I'm saying? Before it all went down. You were there in the front row of the basement getting spit on by Fred. Go to the first one. I'm not doing that. It's like when they come out with the first model of a car. You don't want to buy that one. You want to buy like the next year when they've worked out some of the kinks. So I'll be there probably next year, 2025. Because why wouldn't I? Fuck, it sounds fun. And you know I love ice climbing. Okay, on to Thomas Bukowski. Thomas Bukowski, a.k.a. Neo Dude, is an alpinist, a rock climber. He also happens to be half Chinese, grew up in Hong Kong. How he got the name Bukowski? Well, simply had a German father. He's on the North Face athlete development team, which is clearly North Face's push to diversify its athlete roster. And how does Thomas Bukowski diversify North Face's athlete roster? Well, Thomas Bukowski is openly gay. And I say openly gay because I think that's pretty rare in alpinism. I mean, Thomas and I both feel like it's pretty rare and he's out there doing it. Of course, a lot of queer people don't necessarily want that to be the flag. They're always flying no matter what they're doing. They might want to just go climbing without that being the first thing people want to talk about. However, for Thomas, it's something that he's doing. It's something that he's bringing to climbing. He does want to spend his career promoting affinity spaces for gay climbers, for underserved communities, 
and be that activist that's bringing climbing to where it hasn't really been before. But he also happens to be a really good climber. So we catch him in a van in Yosemite, pretty classic. He had just finished doing three El Cap routes in three days, and it was sort of in between him blasting off to Patagonia. So this guy has a bright future and an interesting perspective. I hope you enjoy it. The first new episode of 2024 with Thomas Bukowski. I think it'd be cool to like maybe at the start like go through sort of my background a little bit because it is kind of I think I do have a little bit mm-hmm. of like a funny sort of uh both a funny oh, path yeah, to climbing but also just a funny funny little life um so far and um <laughs> you just named the interview <laughs> there you go my funny little life a funny little life <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but, um, <laughs> yeah there's several things that make you um unique and one of them is yeah where you came from so we'll get to mm-hmm. there but um can we open with just talking about current events? Because I made a joke this morning about like, I hope this isn't interrupting a fourth big wall. So right. you just got done with a tear on El Cap. So let's uh, let's just open with that because um, sure. you know, we're a climbing podcast. You're a climber and you've been climbing some pitches. So yeah. <laughs> tell yeah. tell me a little bit about your, your little run of the last week or so. Yeah, I was kind of trying to find something. I'm just like not fast enough to do the triple crown in Yosemite. So I was like, cool, like what can I do? That would be like a cool challenge. I think originally the idea was it would be good training for Patagonia was my thought. I was like, oh, like Patagonia going out for like two, three, four days and you're just kind of doing these massive days back to back. And I was like, well, maybe like just climb out cap a bunch of times would be a good way to train for that. So I ended up doing three, three routes in three days, just like every day, go do a route on a cap and come back down and eat and sleep and I think the cool thing about that also that I really like is that it's you do some kind of mega link up. It's like you start and you're basically like, okay, I'm just going to hold on tight until I finish. And then you're, when you finish the climb, you're like, cool, I'm done. Like, you know, it's, it's over. But then by kind of coming down every day and like eating and then being back in the van and then being like, okay, got to go again next day. And you have the opportunity to kind of try and recover and put on the hand creams you need or whatever it is. It's kind of like it makes it more into kind of like a three day long thing where you've got to pay attention to more than just the climbing and how quickly you're climbing. You'll be like, okay, well, I actually don't want to climb too fast because then I'll get, you know, I, I'll, that'll hose me for like, you know, the second or the third day. And the recovery becomes really important and just kind of the, it's, it's, it's a more holistic challenge than just like, okay, start the clock at the bottom of the mountain and just climb as quickly as possible to the top of the mountain. Let's see, we ended up doing South here the first day, uh, which was hard and expected. And then, the nose and then looking for your last name. Yeah. Classic. Who, who did you have different partners or did you hook up with? Yeah. Who, is it no, one I, partner? A, I climbed with uh, he and Jameson the first day and then, um, mm-hmm. and then Sam Stuckey came in for day two and three. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, I kind of struggled with that a little bit. It would have been cool to do with one person, but it was also, I don't know, in these like sort of deep suffer fests, sometimes it's nice also to be like, okay, you're kind of in your own world. Maybe I kind of come a little bit from like the outrunning running world where you're like very, my, I'm on this journey alone. So like, it was nice to kind of be like, okay, cool. Well, you know, to have someone fresh, especially with day two, and kind of just be like, all right, you know, I'm going to be a little slow and a little creaky, but sort of being able to hand, sort of live in that world in my own brain was kind of nice. 
opening with the Salta, and I, that thing's really physical, you know? I mean, what, however you're physical. doing it, whether mm-hmm. you're free climbing as much as you can, squirming, because there's a ton of big, wide pits on that route. Yeah, just all the squirming on the tens, the se- I mean, even like the seven, yeah, mm-hmm. and, the, and off that bivy on top of the hollow flake, that next pitch is like physical. It's all physical. It's like, it's, it's pretty physical. wild. It's every like- pitch, I feel like every pitch has like a, a, almost has a squirm on it, you know? Yeah, and it's like real steep. And also just like someone, I think someone was working the, the theory that going through is that someone was working the head wall. So it was like really stripped of fixed gear. So I think only far any of us took the whole, the three days was me whipping off of like a cam. It's like really like shot my nerves for maybe like a day and a half, really. But um, like, I was just like, wow, this was terrifying. And then I like do some like be cooking on like dead heads, which I like never really done before. And I was just like, not that much of like an aid aid climber. It was just a very, like, it was kind of this moment where I was like, oh, I could bail. So then I ended up doing like two and three quarters. What do I do with my life if I bail now? I was like, I don't, it's like, oh God. <laughs> like, so it took a little, yeah, I was just like throw myself in the Merced, I guess, but it took a little while to like um, get through it sort of mentally. And then, and then I just did it and it was fine. But you know, the mental part was just like, I was just like, it was like, I like put my head in my arms. It was like, it was like amazing. I was like on the side of the head was like, you know, 2000 feet of air below me. It's like the sun is setting. It's like gorgeous, like golden hour. And I'm just like head in my arms being like, what have I done? Why am I here? Right. <laughs> I made that's a huge so mistake. funny. Yeah, that's, it's great to hear you struggle with all the same shit everybody does. Cause yeah, I mean that whole thing of like, I've set this project for myself and if I if I'm unable to do it, I'm, I'm like worthless. It's like, this is my whole future hinges on like, am I going to send my project? And then the other funny thing I thought was, Oh, I'm going to do this, this thing that like, you know, most climbers would be like a crowning achievement, but I'm doing it as training for this other thing in the future. You know, everything's training for the next thing. It's all Um, training. That's pretty, that's a pretty classic thing. Yeah. I mean, not that it super matters if like other people have done or not before, but you know, I don't think it's something that's super commonly done. The like the three P mm-hmm. is, I think the name that stuck for it, but yeah, I don't think it's super commonly done probably for good reason. It's like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's sort of on the more masochistic side of things, but, but yeah, no, it was, it was super fun. And it's like, to, I don't know. It's something that's very much up my alley. Just it works well with my brain and my personality. Yeah. So I, I was stoked. It was a great time. Well, congratulations. It's it's no, an awesome yeah. accomplishment and, and hopefully it'll it will serve you well when you're grinding it out somewhere for on hour thirty six on some alpine route. But um you I actually I, I need to ask you if you because you're like you are I'm gonna make you sort of my reporter on the scene. Have you run into these cats that just freed the nose? I don't uh, think so. No. Uh, Alex would... Waterhouse and Billy Riddle or Riddle. No, I don't think I ran into um, them. Yeah, they're like comp oh. climbers but then also like they were yeah yeah it's like yeah that's whoa. like the the, the storyline is they're like retired comp climbers that have never big well climbed and they just freed the nose and i can't tell how old they are but they look like kids to me but that that doesn't mean they're not in their like late 20s um totally. <laughs> to be honest but so anyway i was just curious because it's like it sort of is blown up a little bit on the internet that you know and that's the the, the line is that they basically like you know stopped grabbing giant volumes and went up and did did the nose immediately although there was a lot of work put in so I was yeah well, it's not if, so if, different if you it's were also aware of those guys slippery slopers right it's kind of in a vague yeah. way similar kinds of climbing <laughs> no yeah, no so, i mean it's those a guys. super cool story we did run into three parties of japanese climbers 
was two parties on the South A that were trying to free the South A. And then, so maybe they met free rider, unsure, but like, you know, maybe there's a bit, there's always a bit of a language barrier there. And then on the third day, I'm looking fear ran to these two guys that were also trying to free. They were like working the lurking fear pitches. And it's just like, whoa, I don't feel like I've never heard of anyone even trying the lurking, trying to free lurking fear. Legend has it that, you know, all the hall and that's gone on. It has like sort of blown off a lot of the edges that uh, Tommy and Beth used back in 2000. Was it 2000 when it got free? Right. Um, but yeah. yeah, like I was just like, whoa, like there's so much free climbing. There's like three or four parties in El Nino. It's like there's so much free climbing happening out cap. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. The El Nino seems like it got hip. So yeah, I'll, I, it's funny because it's just all my Instagram, you know, it's like, that's all I know. That's totally. how I know everything's happening. Right. Um, so a revolution of people being able to, like average Joe's being able to, uh, to step up to that level, I think is, is where we're at these days. You know, you don't have to be the, the top anymore to go up there and have a really good shot at it. So yeah, I wonder um, it's what, pretty cool. what changed. Like, I feel like, is it that like the big wall system got better or like everyone's just it's easier now to become a stronger climber because like there's so many more gyms. This gyms are much better. We know what training. Like what I I, I we think about this a lot because like I don't know, I started climbing in the valley like ten or twelve years ago, and I was like, oh, never the idea of free climbing out cap just never even crossed my mind because it was just seemed like it was only people that was like Tommy and Alex and Beth and Lynn Hill. Like it's all these people that are like just absolute legends that would be able to do it. But now it's like free riders got to be getting freed like fifty, a hundred times a season a year now. You know, it's like so. Like, I, I wonder what was changed, like what's changed, you know? I mean, it's a little bit of everything, but my opinion is always vision. You know, you get a couple average people who do one of those things. I mean, I was sort of one of them, um, you know, my, my Prius sense a little bit asterisks, but yeah, I mean, you just get a few people and it kind of starts to crack the door and other people find out. And then I think, you know, e- even I've often said like the, the Hubers, you know, were, were kind of blew the doors open they showed up like 97 ish. And then by like the two thousands, there was, you know, there was quite a few people free climbing. It's not like five years, all those people got that much stronger, but they, they saw this vision and this idea that it could be done. And I think we've just kind of reached maximum, you know, consciousness of like, well, that guy could do it or that girl could do it. Then I can do it. Kind of a thing just starts to build in my opinion. Um, so maybe it was just, again, it was mental all along. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than like, it's always is right. Better. It turns out. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's funny because I think we focus so much in climbing about like, oh, I need to like train more and hangboard more. And like, you know, how much weight can I do on this? And that like so much of, I feel like climbing can be focused on that and focused on like being stronger physically, but we almost never, there's more of it now, but it's almost never talk about the mental side. And we talk, there's more about like falling and things like that. I feel there's so many things that are maybe like, a lot of us can do, but we just feel like we can't do. I mean, that's definitely my my journey or whatever has been definitely is filled with things. I'm like, well, I never could do that. And I'm like, oh, I did it. So I guess I could do it. Or like, you know, or seeing someone else do it. Yeah. Know? Oh, cool. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's it's snowballs, you know, and, and that's, you have to have a certain amount of audacity. I think that's a For hallmark sure. of, of climbers. And, you know, you have to take those steps. And I can think of 20 ways in my climbing career where I didn't, and I probably should have you know, and, sure. and, may, yeah. and who knows what that would open because you have both. I mean, you're going to have both in your life but, right. and in your climbing where, and then years later, you're like, I could have done that. Like, why didn't I do that? Like that guy did it, you know, or that girl did it. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, I think that's, that's, it's all, a, a lot of it's mental. I mean, you know, you can't just mentally climb like 
15C just because you you know there's totally. like a little more that goes into <laughs> it's like if I just get my mind right you know I'll be able just to think do, about it I'll the right way to just silent the route yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> but you know it's like 12D or whatever the free rider is, is hasn't been cutting edge for a long time so and totally. if you took those pitches and put them off the ground at a crag you know it's like yeah, most yeah. really decent climbers could get up them so yeah you accept all those put those parts in um but anyway let's talk about you um so you're you're hanging out in your van too this is this is a fun one because you're i can actually see you in your in your in your van and um, yeah yeah so it feels a little more authentic like we caught you right in the middle of it that's why i wanted to start with that stuff you know i listened to another podcast that you did and looked around the web and and kind of figured out a little bit about what to talk about but i'd i would like to talk about your past um, where you came from, because it's it's fairly unique, uh, especially running into you here in the states, because that's mm-hmm. um, this isn't your where you were born. Let me ask you a few questions about that. I mean, you were yeah. born in Hong Kong. No, um, I was actually born in the states. Is that states. correct? I know you grew up there. No, oh, I you were okay. Right, yeah, I was born in Arizona. Okay. Yeah, because um, oh. basically, this is back in the late '80s, I guess. But yeah, my my. Mm-hmm. My mom wanted me to have a my mom's Chinese from she grew, she was born in Hong Kong grew up in Hong Kong, and she wanted me to have a an American citizenship because you know back then it was very it's probably still pretty fashionable to have an American citizenship but it was you know it was like oh you know that it's the passport to the world so she just literally like call maybe she just wrote a letter to like a friend she knew in Arizona and was like hey can I just fly over and stay with you for three months and then give birth to my child in the U S and that's what she did it was like. <laughs> just crazy like it's i think about it now so she was like a single mom you know think about it now it's like can you imagine like and she was like 40 41 when she had me like so fairly old like just kind of fully oh, yeah. yoloing across the pacific and be like cool i'm just gonna go to this like other country and just have my kid and then fly back to hong kong but that's what she did and um that's so i was born in the u.s actually which is like really funny i mean i think i spent probably maybe i don't know but like a week or two here before we you know we all flew back to hong kong <laughs> you know, whatever sort of sort of post birth things that needed to be done. And um but then otherwise I grew up in Hong Kong. Um where there's actually pretty good climbing, but I didn't know that until, you know, well into climbing in the US. I was like, oh, there's like great like sea cliffs and like cool little track climbs and a lot of like volcanic, old volcanic rock in Hong Kong. So it's like actually some pretty good climbing. But I never climbed there. Right. So kind of um position us about what growing up in hong kong is like or what it was like for you um i'm sure it's, there's you know diverse economics and everything else that makes it different for everybody but compare it to what you know about kids growing up here like what was that like i mean hong kong's kind of an interesting place because when i was growing up it was still a british colony and i was like 97 sure. nine years old when it got handed back to the chinese and back then there was a lot of kind of talk about how the hong kong people are like ethnically chinese and they you know they feel as part of the same people as the people in China, right? But it's a very different society, very different development as a place than like than China has, you know, in the last 150 years or so. So the Hong Kong's been a British colony. Um, but it was also funny for me because so I'm half German, hence the Bukowski for the last name, and half Chinese. And so I, I had blonde hair when I was a kid. Hong Kong was a place that was kind of split a little bit, right? So this East meets West, it was 99.99% sort of Han Chinese in terms of people. But it had like these British rulers. And then I was a mixed chi- child there. We used to go to McDonald's a lot because, you know, I guess we didn't know any better. And, you know, it's back in the 90s. There was one time, I was six, and I went up in the, to the counter to order, you know, order something by myself. And the, the person 
she spoke to me in English because she thought I was, you know, uh, she thought I wasn't, a, didn't know Cantonese. She thought I was like, you know, a, a, an expat or like, you know, a foreign kid. And I had this like moral dilemma. It's my first time I remember having a moral dilemma. Do I reply to her in Cantonese, which would kind of be like, sort of, it's kind of like a dig. It's like, oh, you thought I wasn't, you know, Chinese, but actually right, I am Chinese. Right, like, yeah. So that's kind of weird. Or do I reply in English? But I know that like English would be harder for her to communicate in. And I was just like, what do I do? Like, do I? Do I like which language do I reply in? You know, I think I ended up going, I think I ended up replying Hanese, but it was just this funny thing where it's just like, I was kind of like straddling these cultures. And, and that was, I think, mostly my, how I grew up. It was kind of this funny thing where I ended up going to, um, I ended up going to private school because my mom, when she was working, was, she was an English teacher in like the local Chinese schools. And they're like very strict, you know, everyone has their own desk and like lots of homework and kind of sort of fits the stereotype of how you imagine like, you know, a Chinese or an Asian schooling would be like. And she just kind of knew I was like too, I was not a classic kid that I wouldn't sit still, run around all the time, like wouldn't do my homework, kind of very distracted and so on and so forth. And she was like, she just knew I wouldn't survive in like the local school system. She, I, she, she, I remember she, she said, she was like, oh, like, oh yeah, we see a couple kids like you every year. You know, it's not their fault. They're just like, the system is just not built well for them. Kids the back like row kids. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, the, the, you know, the kids that like, you know, the kids that won't sit still and like always running around and you're like, okay, right, well, that, right, right. that doesn't work well with, you know, lots of homework. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I ended up going to like private school and like she like taught me English so I could like get into these schools because then, you know, I didn't, we didn't speak English at home growing up because we're Chinese family. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. I was like kind of in this, like in these like international schools, as they're called in Hong Kong. And they're like, you know, a lot of expat kids and you know, some American kids, you know, some local kids, you know, but then I had this very like Chinese sort of upbringing at home, but then like this sort of fairly international sort of like I spoke English every day at school. Like sort of that's kind of how my life started, right? I was always kind of straddling sort right. of these two cultures and always kind of like never quite fitting into like one or the other and always kind of having to like bridge, I guess, like the differences between the things mm-hmm. and also the difference of socioeconomics situations, right? Like I mean, we were kind of like maybe lower middle class growing up. I think being a mm-hmm. public school teacher in Hong Kong is a little better off than in the US, but not that much better off. It's still a public, you know, a public teaching job. But a lot of my classmates were like, yeah, folks who were just more wealthy. You ended up in, you know, um, eventually in San Francisco yeah. um, as an adult. And, you know, and if, if I met you, I wouldn't have any idea, I think, um, r- right away that you, you know, you grew up speaking Chinese in, mm-hmm. in, in Hong Kong, you know? Mm-hmm. So what would you say, like, you know, so you've, you've incorporated American culture, I'm sure, quite well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. For for better and worse, um, depending on <laughs> on how you look at it. But what remains in you? Do you think, like in maybe your personality, the way you do things, from being you know a kid, a Chinese kid, basically growing up in Hong Kong? Can, is there anything like personality wise? You're like, oh yeah, that still comes out, or or whatever, or have you um, just basically shed it? I actually, in, in something I you said, um, you eviscerated yourself from your culture. You used that word. I don't know if you remember using that or if mm-hmm. you were. If it would just came to your mind, or if that's if that no, no. word has portents, but I think um, that's fair. I yeah. think like, <laughs> I mean, coming to the U.S., I kind of like had some. I like was a kind of immigrant, right? Like I didn't struggle with a lot of the immigration sort of issues and the legal issues because I, because my mom flew over and gave birth to me here. But like, you know, as I didn't when I moved to the U.S., I didn't know anyone in the U.S. And like when I moved up to San Francisco, I was like, you know, I was kind of like, oh, like. I mean, I want to move it to San Francisco. And I was like, where is San Francisco? I think there's a bridge. Like, I, like I just didn't know very much about the U.S. at all. So, like, I think I assimilated a lot, right? I, like, 
as as immigrants do. And I think in part of that, you eviscerating, if you will, right. I think I still come off quite, I think maybe the a term to describe it is like kind of Asian American, right? I think I'm still like, I tend to be on the quieter side. You know, I tend to not necessarily be someone who's like super loud and takes up a lot of space in that way. Like that's just kind of how, that's a, that's a, an aspect of Asian culture, right? And I think a lot, a lot of other things to see with me is like, you know, when I dropped out of college, my mom was already like, oh, what are you doing? But like now when I'm like so, sort of not working and just climbing all the time and living in a van, she's, I mean, it's like, it's very hard for her to understand, I think, this. And I think very hard for her to like, be like, is it good or bad? Like, are you doing well or not doing well? Like living in a van seems like you're not doing well, you know? So I think a lot of those, um, <laughs> right? I mean, it used to be, <laughs> it used to be bad um, living. Hey, in it's a nice van, and, mom. I mean, it's not just like a Chevy. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. But I don't think she really understands, you know, the the, the spectrum of vans out there. Um, but right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um yeah. But I think those voices also still inside me, right? Where I'm kind of like, oh God, maybe mm-hmm. I should go get a real job. Maybe like this whole climbing thing is. I think my mom likes to say, oh, you've taken the hobby too seriously. You know, um, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think she those things stay right. with me. <laughs> she might be totally. I think that might apply to most people that spend a lot of time climbing, right? But I mean, here we are. <laughs> One of the things that plays prominently in your media and, and I think in your, I guess, your uh, attitudes and your outreach is that you identify as as a gay man. Part of what you do are working towards as a guide. I was reading about, mm-hmm. you know, this desire to quote, uh, bring more queer folks into climbing, guiding, make climbing mm-hmm. more diverse is mm-hmm. is one of your missions. We here listening in the states, we know about the spectrum of attitudes towards gay men in this country. Did you come out before you left Hong Kong? What are the attitudes like there as far as that? In Hong Kong, I think it's growing grow, growing up growing yeah. up gay basically is what I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I really realized it until it took me like a long time when I was in college in the US was when I was, I was like freshman fall. I like woke up one morning and I was like, oh, I'm gay. Like I think I knew in some ways, but I didn't have like the label for Just it for one a long morning. time. It was like a very bizarre experience. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh, I see. Like, well, I think this, it, I think it mm-hmm. highlights an interesting thing, which is the difference between like sexuality and identity, right? Like I think someone can be like, oh, I'm attracted to the same sex. And like, I'm mostly date and have sex with whatever people are the same sex but they might not identify with the community um and identify with the label in the same way and that's so there is a difference actually i mean without getting too much into like gender studies but in hong kong it's it's kind of a, it has kind of like a don't ask don't tell sort of vibe to it mostly where it's like and people are like oh well that's you know that's not great but people aren't like explicitly homophobic necessarily recently i think it's gone to a point where it's like you know, you're totally cool with like other people's children being gay, but if it's like your own child being gay, you're like, oh no, that's maybe not good. So we're kind of at that stage of the of the process there. I think unfortunately, like in the last couple of years, since China has kind of, I think, cracked down a little more on civic discourse and, and free speech and that, and, and just kind of tightened the, their grip a little bit on, on Hong Kong, they have also, I think, discouraged more, sort of, it's become less okay politically like being gay and just like gay culture and community for lots of reasons but i mean one of them being that i think china's one child policy has set them up it's set them up sort of demographically they have like very few children now to take care of like a large number of older adults so they're like they have this whole kind of campaign of like 
no, you should have more children now. We want more children to have more workers for the nation, you know? And um, so if you're if it, so if you're gay, then it's like, oh, well, you're probably not going to have kids. So that's bad because then you're not supporting this like national cause to have more children. Yeah. So I think that actually has made it worse to be, to be, you know, gay, to be queer and in, in, to be kind of like not sort of nuclear family, sort of like um, normative family structures in, in Hong Kong. So ah, sometimes things move forward. Sometimes things take a step back. <laughs> the climbing podcast question is where did climbing come into all this? You said you yeah. weren't. When you were in Hong Kong, was it something that you found um, filmy? And you, it was boarding school in Norway. Okay, you went to boarding school in Norway. Norway, yeah, yeah. 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 Is that when when did climbing show up? Yeah, I. Um... Well, and it, there's also what before we get to that. Like, there is an interesting thing is that so many people who come on this show were the the squirrely kid who couldn't sit still. Uh, totally, you know, both men and women that come on yeah. this show. So it's like it's like. It fits that suddenly there was this thing that were being the energy filled squirrely kid paid off, if you will, if you're a climber. Yeah, you know? totally. So anyway, and sorry that way, to interrupt, yeah. but yeah, go back to uh, the learning it. No, it's nice to fit. It's nice to fit into that that um, stereotype for sure. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I ended up going to boarding school in Norway, and it was kind of like a a school that was like everyone was on scholarship. They were trying to bring together as many uh, sort of cultures and countries as possible. So like in my hundred person class, there were forty four nationalities. So it was like also a very crazy experience and like very life-changing and very interesting. But at that school, I ended up becoming pretty good friends with a physics teacher. And he turned out to be this Chris Hamper, one of the strongest climbers in Britain in like the 80s, Sheffield and things like that. Like there's like these old guidebooks of him like putting up like the first 13A in Sheffield or something like that, you know. And so he kind of like any self-respecting climber, you know, he like, you know, married, had like three kids, settled down in Norway, teaching at the school. He just like went to like a local wall and just scrub the crap out of it and bolted it. And now you have some climbing, you know, next to your house. That was how I started climbing. I started climbing outside on this like wall that was like scrubbed. There's like, remember there was like one, like five, nine with like a really bold remove that was like super hard and kind of close to the ground. And there was like this 10 D that like was everyone's like first project. Like everyone was like, just you're like, okay, we got the five nine. So now you try to leave the 10 D and it's like super scary. And like, and um, yeah. And, I think I projected that thing for like seven or eight months. So just go every other week or week and just go and throw myself at that thing. I was maybe like 17 and that was how I started climbing. It was very random. <laughs> it's funny how it seems random, but there was some outlet that was needed and could have gone a bunch of different places, but you took to it. Did you pretty quickly start thinking about like my future? Where am I going to live so I can keep doing this? Like what were your, what were your vibes as you moved on? No, not really. So I finished school there and then I ended up going to college in the East Coast. Uh, when, I went to college at Dartmouth for two years um, in New Hampshire. So I ended up climbing in Romney a bunch and I also had a really good mentor there. And I think I went down to the gunks once to like trad climb and was kind of just like, what are all these widgets? And then I ended up dropping out of college. And when I dropped out of college, I had been um, sort of programming computers since I was like pretty young, like 10 or 11. And when I dropped out of college, I was like, well, I guess I need to get a job because I don't want to move back to Hong Kong. So it's like between like New York and San Francisco. And I was like, oh, San Francisco, they do computer stuff there. And they do, you know, they have gay people there. And I was like, sounds great, you know. So that's how I ended up moving to San Francisco. And I ended up just looking on Craigslist, found a place to live. And it happened to be two blocks of the climbing gym. And I think back then, just like climbing wasn't very, I really liked it. But it, it just, I didn't really have space to be really obsessed with it. Like, I just had so little 
like I was like just trying to like get my life established and like make some money so I could pay rent and like figure out how to cook pasta. Like it was just so much, so much like more like urgent things to deal with. I was like, you know, oh yeah, climbing's fun. That's that's a fun thing to do. But like, yeah, it was just like so many other things I did I had to sort of focus on first. But it was crazy. Yeah, I like moved to this place in the mission. It was just like, oh, thank God, someone wants to live with me. Great. And I just like, cool. Now I have somewhere to live. And then I like half a year later, I was like, oh, I'm two blocks from Mission Clips. I like didn't even know because I was just like too busy with non-climbing life stuff. It's like such a classic story. I like went, I like had a friend I met in the gym. We're like, oh, we're going to Yosemite. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, sounds great. I heard there's great climbing in Yosemite. No idea where Yosemite was. Didn't know how to drive. Didn't have a car. So it was kind of like, didn't have a trad rack. And I showed up in Yosemite. And I was like, oh no, it's all trad. And I was like, I guess then you'll learn how to trad climb. Crap, you know? Um, and so that was kind of how it all started. But yeah, I could have moved to New York City instead. And I probably would have maybe never really gotten more into climbing. But it was just sort of mm. one thing led to another. And I was like, oh, I guess right. here I am in, I guess I need to learn how to drive so I can drive to Yosemite so I can climb. And now climbing is completely taken over my life. <laughs> It's, it's fascinating because it's like I see these little markers in your progression and I want them to be, you know, like I dropped out of college to go climbing or I did this to go climbing. But um, mm. it's not like that. Was, is there a story uh, worth mentioning about dropping out of Dartmouth? I think it was just wasn't a great social environment for me. They probably really dislike this um, characterization, but I, like, I kind of like to say that like Dartmouth is where like people like Brett Kavanaugh sort of get made they like really like beer and they're like kind of have questionable sort of like behavior towards women and just generally are kind of like really weirdly entitled and kind of just like really aggressive and you're just like oh god you know um yeah so drama was i think socially not a great environment for me and i mean it's an amazing school but i i just wasn't doing very well and it was kind of like one of those things where it's like hmm, maybe i should take a break you know it, i mean it was definitely a very difficult period i was also like moving to the u.s and i was like didn't know anyone and like everything was so like I had a bigger cultural shock going from Norway to the U.S. than going from Hong Kong to Norway. Somehow, I just it was just yeah. I mean, the U.S. is just a, it's very it's a I found it a very overwhelming place to move to. Like I remember, like the first time I went to like a Kmart, it was just like wow, how is there a building that's this big with this much stuff in it? And I was just like, I don't. I basically had like a mini panic attack. I was like, I don't know what to do. Everything is so expensive here. Like oh my god, like do I need a bicycle? Maybe I do need a bicycle, but it's like a hundred dollars. It's like that is so much money, you know, in Hong Kong dollars and so on and so forth. But yeah, that's fascinating. If if you thought uh, if you thought a hundred dollars was a lot of money, then yeah, Dartmouth must have been a really weird place for you. Um, it was a very weird place. Yeah, yeah I don't think a lot of the, the people there concern themselves with a hundred dollar bicycle. But yeah, that's no. interesting. But then you didn't, you know, you went to San Francisco, and it wasn't like I'm going to find a new place to finish my collegiate experience. Um, you just decided to drop into the to the workforce and. Um, but let me ask you one yeah. other thing. You 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 sort of casually mm -hmm. mentioned um, waking up one morning and realizing you were gay um, is mm -hmm. pretty much exactly how you put it. I mean, did that, mm -hmm. you know, was that revelation cause any consternation for you? Did you did you embrace it? Because, I mean, when you're talking about and, and I heard you say this elsewhere, too, like, oh, yeah, I went to, you know, I decided to go to San Francisco because I heard there were gay people there. Like, it seems very casual, like you sort of incorporated it and basically embrace the identity but did that really happen that way i think more or less i i think i think for me like just personally i think being gay has always been this kind of like it's like this curiosity right and i think it's it's not so different from any 
like anyone's you know when you like maybe you know see someone across the bar um and you're kind of like oh that person looks you're kind of like interested right and like that's and regardless of gender or whatever like i think attraction is this thing that kind of is this in a way like you can describe as like a private curiosity right you're like oh what's going on there i kind of want i would like to investigate further and i think that's always kind of how it's felt to me i think yeah i think looking back i think it was there was a lot of like struggle inside in terms of how to make sense of it but i think at the end of the day i was kind of just like oh like well now that i have a word for it i can go find other people and places which have the same word and i think it was always one of those things like oh i should like spend a little time on this gay thing you know i shouldn't like just kind of put it aside i should like factor it into my decision making for like where to live or whatever i think that that was at least back then when i was like 20 that was kind of how i thought about it and and i mean i'm really glad i did i think it's like if you want to kind of like figure out yourself you know as a gay person as a queer person like in your early 20s like moving to san francisco is probably one of the best places in the world to do that so that like you know that little bit of kind of like oh they have gay people there um worked out pretty well for me and i'm like really glad i did that because i think it's funny these days I spend so little time in cities now, right? Because I'm always I'm living the band, <laughs> trying to climb as much as right. I can and things like that. And and like it's almost like a reverse, like it's almost like I'm going back in the closet because I'm just like, well, because depending <laughs> on where I am, some places I feel it's more scary to like be openly gay or to have like pink hair or whatever it is, you know? Um, to be like, oh no, these pants are a little too tight, maybe for Wyoming. But like <laughs> most of the time I don't feel no, they like the tight they like tight pants as long as they say Wrangler on them. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah. Make some fashion shifts here, but um, <laughs> so um, yeah. But it's like most of the time I don't feel like afraid to be gay. But it's I'm mm-hmm. also like surround mm-hmm. like there, I'm, n- I'm never like in like maybe sometimes there's like one other person that's gay or queer, and I'm like, oh, that's great. But it's not like I'm never in a community of queer people, right? And um, it's like a way of going back in the closet because it's like well it's like it's something that i like never really talk about and like no one really will understand in the way where like they also have the same lived experiences right and so it's just this thing where it's i don't know i think it's it's really been a a sort of very central struggle where i'm just like but it's also like a very silent struggle right because i'm like well i'm still climbing a ton and that's great but there's this thing that like once again it's kind of like sort of in the background and like i wish i could like spend more time on it but like now mm-hmm. spending more time out of it, it on it is like oh let me try and van life in San Francisco which you know which is like not so appealing and um and so it's it's a tricky it's tricky it's been a very tricky experience for sure yeah it, it, that's a fascinating way to look at like sort of like returning a little bit to the closet i mean not pretending that you're not gay or or not telling right. people or whatever but it probably does feel like that in that climbing world one way that i think about this these these identities these days i i really like is you know there's some identities you can't hide like if you have dark colored skin or you like have a very visible disability like you can't hide that like there's no way to hide it so the response to that often is to be like very like you know the response of sort of being discriminated because of that you your response as the person with that identity is to be like well i'm proud to be Black, I'm proud to be adaptive. I'm proud to be, you know, this thing that I can't hide. And like that's a that makes a lot of sense as a response, right? But I think sexuality specifically, I mean, I think being trans is like a different thing, right? But sexuality specifically is something that you can hide, right? Like you can 
when I happen to be in Wyoming or Idaho, I can sort of modify how I am to come off more straight or more normative in some way. And I think that's, it's this, it's kind of this, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? On one hand, you can like sort of in a way, keep yourself safe or just keep yourself feeling safer and feeling more comfortable if you need to kind of in any, any social situation. But then you also have this, you want to run this your way like, well, what does it look like if I'm not hiding it at all? And you don't know what that is. You haven't lived over a period of time where you're like always not hiding it in some way. And so you're going to get lost in like, well, what does it mean for me to be, to be like fully open with being gay? Like, is, do I have to tell everyone that I'm gay the first thing that I meet them? Like, is that, is that being fully open? Or like, is it about being like, cut you know, sort of talking in a certain way? Like, does that matter to me? Like, it's tricky. And I think like, I think it's just maybe if, if there's one thing I leave with it is like almost every person that has a non non-normative sexuality, I think is struggling with this kind of like, what is really a quote unquote authentic um, expression of myself? Because we spend so, because we can hide it and because it's so useful to be able to hide it. So we're always kind of playing along that spectrum of like, how much am I hiding it today? And like, you know, maybe I just don't want that much attention today or whatever it is, even if I'm right, in San Francisco. Right, right. And so, because it's so hard to figure out, like sometimes you kind of end up coming off too strong in either direction. You know, and it's just like, give us some grace for like every day we're like navigating the spectrum of like, how much do we mm-hmm. do and what is like, and what is the right amount for myself? And, and sometimes you just kind of come out too strong or like, I think it's a, there's a big reason why sort of gay pride is so loud. And in some people would say obnoxious is because it's like, let's have at least a weekend where it's the most, it's the most, um, let's be the most gay we can be. So then at least we have some kind of like. <laughs> sort of milestones for like okay you can be like completely mm-hmm. closeted and you can be like gay pride gay and you're like okay now we can find ourselves somewhere in the middle of this somewhere where we ever want to land on the spectrum but it's like you kind of need some goalposts on both ends a little bit so right anyways it's it's a funny well i mean it's a very it's a yeah. funny way to live <laughs> i mean it, it it is and it's like i'd go at it from the same perspective when i you know it's like i've i read your media and i looked and i'm like okay this you know thomas is going to be open to talk about this because it's it's part of what he does you know he he mm-hmm. he guides people he's created these clinics and all this sort of thing so it's like but i've mm-hmm. had and, and the women you know I of, oftentimes i i talk to women climbers about you know are you is it important to you that you are you know that you identify not not as a woman but like talk about women's issues and some women climbers right. want to do that and other ones they're like no i just would rather be a climber i don't it's not really my thing right. to be pushing that kind of stuff. I get what you're saying about like, well, where is this person's position? Because I don't want to put anyone in. It's not. It's not like yeah. our place to be forcing anybody to uh, to take on a mantle of like activism that they don't necessarily want put on them. And I think yeah. within climbing, like that's been an interesting part of black climbers since since the Black totally. Lives Matter movement. You know, it's like they they maybe don't want to talk about that today. You know, they yeah, just sent some really sick project and that's what they want to talk about today. So totally. I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I think everyone has a different journey here, obviously. I think I am maybe open or maybe even excited to talk about it because I feel like so many years I hit it in a way that wasn't like I wouldn't tell you I was gay, but like I kind of compartmentalized it and sort of just sort of put it, you know, aside in so many different ways. And it's just it goes back to the classic thing of like it's so powerful to see someone that that's like you doing something that you want to do and like i just wouldn't want someone to get just getting into climbing now to like not have not see oh yeah there are gay climbers and like they struggle with some of the same things i struggle with too and 
you know, just driving back and forth between the Sierras and San Francisco constantly or whatever it is. So something that's so easy to hide and we're like programmed in some ways by society to hide it. I'm trying to kind of buck the trend a little bit as much for everyone else as is for like just myself as well. So like I am more comfortable, you know, talking about it and, and embodying it, you know, rather than just kind of like, especially now not being in, you know, in, in cities and in sort of queer communities as much like that I am, that I don't forget as well that I'm not kind of just like, all right, all I'm doing is just climbing and sleeping and then be like, Oh, I forgot. There's this whole side of me that I, is so easy. I'm so used to hiding. Mm-hmm. From myself. Well, uh, let me ask you this real quick. We don't have to dwell upon it, but you know, you're mentoring mm-hmm. going, joking around a little bit too, but going to these places where you're you do find yourself hiding it. I mean, is that again something that you just do almost unconsciously, or or are you encountering actual kind of threats or feelings of yeah. being threatened in in some of these climbing places? I've never I've never had a negative like an explicitly negative experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because of my, like, because someone's like, oh, you're gay. And like, now I'm going to say this thing to you or whatever. Partly, I think I can um, claim that from, again, being like really good at hiding it and just almost subconsciously right. good at hiding it. Right. So I'm just kind of like, you know, it's the simulation happens automatically. But um, I'll never forget this one time I like pulled up to this gas station in Idaho and I like stepped out of the van and I had like my California plates, this big white van. Yeah. And I was like, well, see, that's a problem some, like, right there. Yeah. The yeah yeah started. there's that yeah. and then I'm, i step out have like pink <laughs> hair and like these short shorts on and i'm just like and then everyone's kind of looking at me and i'm like hmm, maybe i'll go to a different gas station it just felt fucking scary sure. you know and right. um but i've never had an explicit i mean i think i'm lucky to never have had an explicitly negative interaction and yeah and because like different kinds of identities have different um you know again it's a blessing and a curse that you know i think sexuality is something you can hide so that gets you out of, I think, more explicit conflicts. I'll go back to your climbing trajectory, uh, because one of the things that is unique about you is, you know, you, you're in this alpine, alpinist space, um, although Jordan just invaded that. How did you get there from, from this like casual gym climber who'd climbed outside, who was living in San Francisco and ended up in Yosemite? But finally, I mean, uh, an alpinist, you, you climb big peaks in Patagonia. It's part of your identity to do big routes. So tell me how that transpired. I mean, it, it's a kind of in a way, a kind of a, it's a very boring progression. Like I started, I mean, my first season in <laughs> Yosemite, I like went and climbed raw arches, you know, it's like 16 pitch five, seven, and it took like 10 hours. And like, and I, I'll never, oh, I'll never forget, like, I think, Arnold and Dean Potter and Sean Leary just like soloed past all of us. And I was just like, who are these people? Uh, but I, you know, I sort of had a mini epic on Raw Arches, like so many people do when they first start climbing the valley and first start doing long routes and first start doing long tread routes. And just over the years, I was like, okay, I'll do some. Now I'm climbing 5'8, and I'm starting to climb 5'9. And, you know, I <laughs> just like slowly just built up and oh, now I'm like projecting 11A, you know. And um, yeah, and it just kind of, it was a sort of a long, slow process. It oh, It feels like, you know, I'm not trying to be overly humble when I say it, but like, I just, I don't feel like I have like a very natural talent for climbing per se. Like, you know, I think a lot of, I'm sure there's some talents there that I'm underappreciating and I'm like underappreciating the privilege that gives me, but it's like, it just took a really, really long time <laughs> to get to a place where it's like, oh, now I can just do El Cap in a day. It's like, I never even thought I would ever climb El Cap. It didn't seem possible. I think on the sort of more Alpine side, it was also kind of really hard. Like it was, 
I spent like many years trying to get into ice climbing. I kind of always thought I wanted to do like big white spiky peaks, partially because I just saw photos of that growing up in Hong Kong, you know? And I was like, whoa, that looks cool. Like, let's go there. And I just, I was just, ter- I don't know. Ice climbing was like so, I was always had just a terrible time ice climbing. It was always too cold or too hot. And like the boots were so uncomfortable and everything was just like really, really hard. And eventually I think what I figured out was, sure, there's the climbing and, and sort of part of ice climbing that's a bit different than rock. but I also just didn't really know how to be in a cold place. So I ended up actually moving to Bozeman for two winters. And yes, I ice climbed a bunch and that was really helpful, but it was equally as helpful, maybe more helpful to just live in a place that was like, oh, you wake up and it's like negative five outside. And you're like, oh, okay, but I can still do stuff when it's negative five or whatever. And like, oh, it's snowed a foot overnight. And like just dealing with like snow and ice and cold temperatures and knowing how to manage that like that was just as big of a learning as like you know how do you swing an axe or things like that so i think patagonia was kind of a similar kind of just slow progression like i remember i bought rollo's patagonia book back in like 2014 or something like that when it first came out and i like literally bought it just because i was like oh this would be a cool coffee table book i'm never going to climb patagonia but i just kind of want to have the book you know it's like the aspirational guidebook purchase and um two years ago, 2022, some of my Yosemite friends were going down. Ted Hesser had been down there at the point twice before he was like interested in going down with me. And so we kind of just ended up that whole thing ended up materializing. And I was like, oh, actually, like I can climb Patagonia. Huh? Who knew? It's generally been a process of like, wow, I'm really scared. And well, I don't think I can do that, but I guess we can give it a try. And, you know, it most of the time working out decently and being like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can try again and do way better the next time. Because now I, like we said before, like, now, mentally, I know I can do it. So much of it was held back by like, oh, I don't think I can do that. Oh, I'm not someone who can climb in Patagonia. Oh, I'm not this and that. So it's a very long process. I was thinking about when we were talking earlier, too, about mission cliffs. And you said I had my, my gay life, my professional life, my climbing life. But then mm-hmm. it occurred to me that that, that gym, you know, it's, this, it's very very uh, early gym. It, you know, it's, it's been right. this kind of touchstone for so many people who've created climbing lives for themselves whatever yeah. it happens to be now i just realized that it was it's probably been this crazy bridge between the gay community and the climbing community like long before we were talking about these issues you know where it is and and what is what it's doing i mean did you did you find like those two worlds so different or you know what was it like to kind of hop between the climbing community and the other community and i'll say this other thing too is I have a really good friend um, I climbed with for years, and he's this former ski uh, ski patroller and and ski competitor, and then he was this incredible climber, like big beard, like classic mountain dude, you know. And his mm-hmm. sister or his brother in law was in, you know, not gay, but in fashion, and and he mm-hmm. was in L.A. And when he would go visit, mm-hmm. like all of hi- him and all of his friends would call uh, would call my buddy Grizzle Adams. Um, uh-huh. not Grizzly Adams, just Grizzle Adams because he would show up and they were all fascinated by his life in the mountains and like this like, right. you know, dirt bag, farmer deadhead, like bearded dude. So it does seem like at least if not the, the climbing gym, but it seems like the lifestyle you're living in a van and stuff doesn't necessarily compute with like the typical image of like a, a San Francisco, uh, gay community. So is there like kind of like a, no, um, totally mishmash there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well people just don't understand they're like so what do you do like so you go climbing you know like i mean I, the joke was always like i would go you know I would 
go off on a weekend in Yosemite and do whatever. And then I come back and my, my gay friends would be like, oh, how was your hike? You know? And I was like, yeah, hike was great. You know, I think gay culture in general, at least in the US is not very outdoorsy. And so it's not that different from maybe like talking to your parents or just talking to you. Like, you know, if you have like a regular white collar job in a city or something and talking to your, those friends and they're kind of like, they're like, what do you do? You're climbing all the time. And like, they just don't, it's hard for them to understand, you know, even though climbing is getting so much more mainstream, it's still like, well, it's not like they're like, oh, I've gone bouldering once in the gym. And it's like, oh, it's not quite the same thing as like climbing a cap in a day. Like it's hard to like bridge, like what difference between those two things are. It's like, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I think climbing is, you know, despite being more mainstream, I think it's still quite a, still quite a weird thing to do. Like it's, you know, um, and you're going to find, I think we're just going to find that a lot of folks are, are like they don't understand it and they kind of like are like oh like that's just a thing that seems very so far outside of most people's um understanding and so there's still a little bit of countercultural vibes left in climbing you know <laughs> so you um are becoming a, i mean you're you're some level of certified guide I, are you working yeah i just passed my rock guide exam so i'm, oh, I'm sort of i'm a certified rock guide now yeah <laughs> Nice. Awesome. I mean, are you pushing, are you going to go all the way to the IFMGA kind of thing? Is that in your brain? Or are oh, you, Lord. Or, or is this more of a, 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 a way to get trained up to, to work on your diversity programs? That for, to a certain extent, I think also, I think yeah. it, it's, it's the same kind of things around visibility around kind of being someone who can be like, Hey, look, there are gay rock guys. There are queer rock guys. And you can do that too. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a part of my motivation too. I think, it's also, I think I really enjoyed guiding and instructing, like, you know, sort of affinity groups or not. It's just like, it's really fun to see someone do something that like half an hour ago, they're like, oh, I can't do that. Kind of in a similar, sort of mirrors my own experiences and my own. So the first time I saw snow, I was 17 in Norway. And I don't know, like, I just never has been a really crap skier. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the skiing thing is going to work out for me. Um, but <laughs> so this kind of puts the right, IFMGA yeah. thing a little bit yeah. far away, but so, I think I'm, st I'm okay, stoked to cool. get the rock thing done. Yeah. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll do the Alpine track at some point and maybe at some point I'll figure out how to ski, but I don't know. This right is just, it's so different from climbing, you know, climbing, you're like, there's so much control and you like to think about yeah, what you're going to do and skiing. You just got to not think about it. And I'm just like, yeah. it's very scary. Yeah. I, I do ski, but it's a much more natural act for me to climb because it's slower. Yeah, exactly. And skiing, it yeah. takes me a ton more concentration. Yeah. Well, moving towards that, doing these affinity group classes, um, mm -hmm. clinics, and and things like that. Tell tell us about that. You kind of just talked about it, and I think it's pretty obvious. This idea of of um, having examples in the community that you can that you that are like you, and you can you can look up to if, if that's not quite the right way to look at it. But um, why why is yeah. like? Well, let me say this: like the pushback. Not really the pushback, but like the people who don't think about this too much are like, you know, why anybody can go climbing? Like, well, there, there's totally. not like literally a gate, you know, you can you can go and buy some shoes and and go climbing. No one's stopping you, kind of a thing. Right. Um. Totally. But the the people who push diversity have a lot lot of arguments as to why it's important. So, um, maybe give us your spiel and and also I'd like yeah. to hear what your what your pitches. Uh, to get people to come to these clinics from that community. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I think in, in that way, climbing, I think, and with sports in general, or the outdoors, very, yeah. the outdoors is not very non-discriminatory, right? It's like anyone can like go hiking and go buy a pair of shoes and go climbing and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's like, yes, that's really nice. Um, But 
you know, we're, we're social creatures, right? We're like, oh, well, who are these other climbers? Who are these other hikers? And so on and so forth. And we want to relate to people, you know, that do the same things as we do, whatever it is that we do. And what does it mean to relate to someone, right? It's like, okay, they share some kind of, they, they, they share some values maybe, but often it's that they share like a lived experience, right? Like, I mean, I feel like we're probably all of us have memories of like the first time you like get down for something, get, you know, you just started climbing, you get down on a climb and you like talk to someone else and they're like, oh, I climbed that too. And yeah, oh, like it's such a weird move right there. And you're like all gesturing in midair and looking really funny. You know, you're talking about like, oh, that camp placement. And like, that's like a shared lived experience, right? You both lived like climbing through that crux or whatever it is. And I think in that same way, like, you know, the, the whole, this whole drive for like affinity programs is really in a way to be like, hey, like, it'll be really nice to go hang out with other people that share your same lived experiences, be it like because of race or gender or sexuality or whatever it is. And it can be really hard to find people like, you know, that share those lived experiences, right? I think it's it's just sometimes it's a very narrow event. I mean, there's still not that many gay climbers that are like sort of semi-professional or public about it. There's just like everyone's like oh there's jordan okay and then there's like me and i'm like cool oh madeline sorkin is queer right cool we got that oh, lores okay you know it's like this is not like it's like hard to cut the list is really short and so it's fully, um it's fully like yeah that. right it's yeah, it's, yeah and so it's like and every you know and i'm sure like last couple of years all the brands like oh wait how many black athletes do we have oh god we've got to find more black athletes anyways so yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's really, the, that's really, that's really all there is to it. It's just finding in the same way that you like, it's so fun when someone else, when you find someone who's climbed the route you've climbed and you can like geek out about the route you have both climbed, you know, and the moves on it. It's the same way that you can find someone who's like, oh, like they, they understand where I'm coming from. Like they can understand, like, like I for a long time felt so alone in this, like, oh, I want to be, I'll be in San Francisco and have FOMO for the mountains and I'll be like in the Sierra and have FOMO with San Francisco. And I'm just like, wow, this is like kind of a torturous process. And turns out that's a really common experience. Like a lot of my, you know, queer friends who climb have that same kind of dichotomy of like, oh God, I want to be in both places at the same time, you know? And it's really nice to be able to share that with someone else. Because it's not, it isn't, climbing isn't just about the climbing, right? For most of us. And so that's why it's nice. It's just hang out with people who understand you. That's really all it is, all there is to it. So what's your pitch? I mean, it's, it's like, why should, is it the yeah. same? Yeah. Like, like you've got, uh, again, you've sort of, I don't know, it's, it's stereotypical, but there's, like you said, it doesn't seem to ha the gay community doesn't seem to have a huge crossover to, you know, hardcore things in, in the outdoors. So yeah. What, what, what's your sort of pitch as to why someone should join it? The other thing I, I would say that's a little bit, I think, and you can, you can disagree with me is that, you know, crossing into new communities for you know certain groups you know there has been and there can be a, a you know it can be very threatening and very literally threatening to feel like you can walk into a group of um you know if you're black and and this is a mostly white sport maybe it's not real when you get there you find out that it wasn't a real fear but but you certainly have those fears and i think you know the threat of violence towards gay people is common and and so i think crossing into new groups that you don't necessarily understand, even if you have a desire and also like leaving the comfort of, you know, what, you know, um, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of, yeah, it takes someone to convince them that it's going to be okay. Um, so I guess, I guess that's kind of like loaded and, and it's not quite as simple as like, Oh, I just want to try climbing, you know, when you, when you're yeah, talking I about certain it's... groups. 
it's like um yeah it's always scary trying new things whatever it is right scary trying yeah and that, but there's sports. like this extra layer to it you know when you have there's this extra layer that, to it that, as well yeah for sure and i mean that's i mean i mean that's yeah that's the pit i mean i think you're you said it earlier right that's the pitch for for the affinity groups it's like i think the way i think about it or the way i like to tell people about it, i guess is like i mean climbing has completely changed my life right like it's been for me it is such an incredibly magical and amazing thing and i would love for more people to experience it and it's always hard to try new things so if there's a way to try something new where you know you it's with people who you know will understand other parts of your life other parts of your other identities you have that makes it a little easier because it's always going to be scary the first time you go climbing it's always going to be scary to to sort of walk into a gym or like go to a meetup or like go to a clinic or whatever it is so within the climbing world i think that that's kind of the pitch i think like in a broader sense there's in the broader society in the us and in general across the world there's there's a lot more sort of societal discrimination and and things and much worse things but like at least in climbing and in just the little world of finite programming and climbing it's like hey we're just trying to make it easier for people to go climbing we started out with with talking about your climbing and it's it's evolved as we as it always does and and you think you're on sort of a normie boring path with your climbing that it seems like well i just you know climbed what everybody else climbed and just kept going so what what are your sort of um you know what are your dreams and and how has your attitude towards climbing evolved over the uh over the last few years you know i know like part of your evolution is is encountering some tragedy in the mountains that you will when you're yeah. an alpinist and um yeah from what I've, I've heard and read you sound pretty uh eyes wide open about that as well but um you talked about this like childlike love that you had for it or and and maybe still have for it but talk a little bit about your your sort of climbing dreams and and the evolution of the way you look at it a little bit yeah i think more than anything else i want to be able to climb for as long as possible so part of that is staying alive um can't climb when you're dead but also just like i, I guess i think a lot more about longe- longevity now right it's like I just think more about like, well, this is something that I, I can do this next season or five seasons from now. And like, there's, you know, there's a natural tapering, I think, as you get older in terms of like, you know, sort of what you can climb or how ambitious one can be. But I wouldn't want to lose. I would prefer not to lose, you know, this thing in my life that I do still have a child like one to four. And I, I still am like, I'm sure lots of other people feel this as well. Like, you know, sometimes I'm like having a terrible day. I just like woke up weird. I'm just really tired. Everything feels kind of weird. And then, you know, I'm just like, oh God, maybe I should bail. And I just go. But eventually I managed to like get to the bit where I'm actually climbing. And I'm like, okay, now I feel a lot better. And it's just like the climbing movement feels so good in my body. I just would really want to not lose that in lots of different ways. I mean, even lose it in terms of like somehow making climbing not fun for me or making climbing too competitive or or whatever it is. I think probably my big hopes and dreams are I think I would love to climb some big spiky white peaks, you know, those I think I've always, in a way I've always, that's what I've always wanted to do. But I spent so long being like, well, I just don't know. There's there's so many skills and gear and things and just, just sort of in the way of being like, oh, now I can go climb six or seven thousand meter peak. It's like, that seems so far away that like now it feels more and more possible. And I would love to get into some of that stuff. And that's partially why I kind of have leaned more into alpine climbing in the last couple years and kind of almost like really a orthogonal direction of that is like i've also been climbing long enough now that i would love to like 
I think I'd love to try try and climb a little harder. You know, I've never been super great chasey. I think I've never really like trained that much, and I've never like in terms of like climbing training anyway. And I've always just kind of been like, okay, well, I'll train just by climbing a ton, and like that works for so long. But at some point, you hit kind of a plateau where you're like, okay, I can climb a bunch more, but like. I mean, I've done so many like 10 pitch 511s and I can do 10 pitch 511s for the rest of my life. But I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, there's probably more to climbing than that, right? Where it's like, I can climb things that are like harder or take a few more tries to to send. And, and like, I feel like there's there's a whole world there where I haven't really explored um, that much. And uh, I'd love to try and get into that a little bit more and be like, okay, like, and part of that is also just like big wall free climbing. It's like, okay, how do can I like climb 513 on day five on the side of a big wall? It's like, that's something that I haven't done that much of as well. But those are, I recognize those are very orthogonal desires, like climbing harder and then doing like high altitude, big white <laughs> spiky mountains are like kind of, but um, ah, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Have you ever thought, or maybe you've gone back or um thought about your, your Chinese roots and, and wondered about dipping into china to climb and that climbing community yeah i've thought about it for sure yeah i think it's 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 it feels like china's kind of in for so after so many decades of like opening up more it seems like it's closing back in a little bit more right now what dialect do, um, did you speak did you say yeah uh, cantonese. cantonese so yeah which is not mandarin which is what yeah. most folks you still got that under cantonese is still got yeah i think it under control it takes a it takes a little time for it to kind of come back but it you know but it, it's still there I learned a little Mandarin growing up. I was never very good at languages or Mandarin, but but I, I feel like I could probably pick up Mandarin fairly easily with my Cantonese background. But yeah, I would love to climb more in China. It's it's kind of the opposite situation to most Americans, right? Like a lot of folks, a lot of Americans are like, oh, I'd love to go climb in like the Middle East or like, you know, China or like sort of far, these far-flung places I've heard about so much, you know, looked at on a globe, you know, in elementary school, you know? And, um, but like, I'm already there, like, the U.S. was the place I looked on the globe in the middle being like, where's that? <laughs> you know? And, oh, look, they right. have this thing called Yosemite over there. And so, like, I, yeah, so I'm I'm actually, I'm pretty happy. Climbing the U.S. still is something that's like, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I get to climb here. And I can't believe, like, you know, I grew up on the other side of the world. And, like, now I live in a van driving around the U.S. Um, and that, all that said, China, I mean, it would be amazing to climb China. There's like, I feel like there's a lot of potential development there. My understanding is that there's like a really strong climbing community over there. And I think like a lot of, I think climbing communities that are like a little bit disconnected from like the sort of Western, like Alps, Alpinism, like American climbing sort of hegemony, like they're kind of dying for some more connection with, you know, other climbers, climbers from different places, you know, and just exposures to like different styles and different, you know, techniques and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I would love to go climb over there. It would be it would be really cool, and I think it would feel like even climbing in like Pakistan. I'm like, oh, like these people are, are a little bit more like me. Like they're kind of they're there's just the mannerisms, and you know, they kind of there's a almost a nostalgia there, and I think that would be also kind of a really amazing feeling to kind of in a way go home and climb. Even climb in Hong Kong more. Like there's pretty good climbing in Hong Kong. <laughs> um, so you know, it'd be ridiculous. Yeah. Those is that if you you know if you were somewhere and uh rocked up with a bunch of north face athletes or whatever and then you know your whole story about uh the the lady at the mcdonald's like not totally. expecting you to spit candies i mean that would like blow some freaking minds if you I rocked so, up with yeah. a big group of those people and then all of a sudden you could start start uh 
conversing. They yeah, would, they would, would, yeah, they would be like, people would happening? freak yeah. out. Especially That'd if I show super we didn't amazing, care. actually. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Just yeah. like halfway yeah, yeah, yeah. through the no. conversation. Wait, like hold out just a little bit, you know, try to communicate yeah, and then with like to- broken English. And then just be like, <laughs> yeah, dude, I can totally speak Cantonese. <laughs> That'd be a, you'd be a hero. Like they, they would be, have a parade for you. <laughs> they would be psyched. Yeah, it would be pretty fun. Yeah. No, I think it would be cool. Yeah, it would be really cool to climb over there. I've literally never climbed in China. So it would be like, a, it would just be, and there's, and they have it all. They have big spiky white peaks. They have like really hard single pitch climbing. They have really hard trad climbing. You know, it's, it's, it's a big country. It's got, a, they've got it all. So awesome. Do we miss anything? Um, I think I'm contractually obliged to plug that a friend and I have been working on a new guidebook to Tuolumne, Tuolumne Meadows, the oh, high country sure. in Yosemite. Yeah. And that thing, the book comes out in, spring next year before well the, the goal is to get it out before the pass opens as always but you can pre-order it now on you can google for it but it's like the website's like tuolumne.guide it's like but does anyone know how to spell tuolumne though anyways um <laughs> you can figure it out it but troubling. uh yeah it's a tr- it's a tricky one um no wonder <laughs> that domain was available but uh yeah so go pre-order the book if you're stoked yeah it's been i mean robin's been working on it for like 12 years and i I sort of sort of who, who are you in. working on it with? This guy Robin Hirsch. He's classically trained as a botanist, but um, he's he's spent a lot of time in Tuolumne most of his life. And yeah, I joined up maybe like four or five years ago, kind of more helping with the production side of things. But yeah, we're we've poured our heart and soul into this book, so we're hoping to kind of just it's such an amazing place to climb, and like almost no one ever climbs there, you know, relative to Nutcracker in the Valley. So yeah, we're really stoked to get this book out. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Thomas for connecting from the van in Yosemite. He's been having an amazing season down in Patagonia, last time I checked. The great post up on his Instagram about climbing Cerro Chalten, pretty epic. He's graduated, for sure. So follow him on Instagram, at NeoDude, to find out what he's up to. Okay, don't forget also to leave a voicemail, 1-888-532-9822. 1-888-532-9822. It's also on the website. Go over there. Leave a voicemail. Leave a TAPS voicemail, but also just leave a voicemail. I'm only going to have this 800 number for about a month. So uh, use it and abuse it. Sing me a song. Read a poem. Insult me. Tell me I suck. I don't care. It's there for your use. Okay. Snowy, cold. In Colorado, ice climbers are psyched, skiers are psyched, people who want to drink water and live are psyched. I hope you're psyched too, and I hope you check your knots. laughing heart your life is your life don't let it be clubbed into dank submission be on the watch there are ways out there is light somewhere it may not be much light but it 
beats the darkness. Be on the watch. The gods will offer you chances. Know them and take them. You can't beat death, but you can beat death in life. Sometimes the more often you learn to do it, the more light there will be. Your life is your life. Know it while you have it. You are marvelous. And the gods wait to delight in you.